Please turn to John chapter 7, verse 37, as we continue our study in this gospel record given to us by God through the pen of his chosen servant, the Apostle John. At this point in our study, Jesus is just six months from the cross. He spent the last two and a half years declaring his deity, his devotion to the Father, and the purpose for his presence, and he'll die in about 26 weeks. The most recent six months have been spent with a most intense focus on personal discipleship with 12 men. In the previous months, we've observed him display unrelenting devotion to his Father's glory, loving compassion for the masses, with a passion for the proclamation of eternal truth that separates believers from unbelievers. This passion for his glory, the love of truth and compassion for people has been manifest in his performing signs and wonders. John 20 verse 30 says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing may have life in his name. Those who are believing are displaying the experience of joy, the joy of trusting and walking with him, which is awakening them to the false religion of those who reject him. They are increasingly becoming aware of the fact that they've been deceived by false teachers. One of the great responsibilities of a true shepherd is to protect sheep from wolves. As in Jesus' day, it is the same in our day that false teachers are on the prowl. One of the great heresies of our day, really of every day, is that Jesus is simply a man, that he is not God in eternity past. And while Jesus has really flooded the people with an expression of his deity and the people have responded by rejecting that doctrine, there are still those who can read through that and somehow twist and gut the Bible of his deity. Specifically regarding those who reject him, there are those religious leaders who have by now expressed their desire to put Jesus to death, but also the people, the masses, who've been willing to follow him for the excitement of the miracles and for a free occasional meal, but have now responded to the deeper truths of who he is by turning their back on him and no longer walking with him. John the Apostle starts with an expression of his deity. The Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And as you hear those very words right out of Scripture, you must be thinking, how could anyone say that Jesus is not God? Well, One, they're not regenerate. They believe in a false Jesus. Two, they're driven by a satanic message to prevent others from believing in the true Jesus and believing in a false Jesus. 
in John 6, verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, heard what? This is where Jesus began to use that metaphor that he is the bread of life. The bread of life from where? Bread from heaven. Not like the manna, not like the bread that God the Father through Moses gave to the people of Israel, which gave them temporary sustenance that kept them physically alive for a while. Those people are all dead. This is bread from heaven. And he calls upon them to take that bread as if they're eating a meal. It's a metaphor. And they choose to take that metaphor literally and therefore to reject the truth that the metaphor represents. The metaphor of eating his flesh represents simply the reality that eternal life is in him. You must eat of him. You must consume of him. You must drink of him. And so they declare him to have a demon, specifically because he's pointed out the fact that their leadership has declared that they're going to kill him. They want to kill him, and they say, what's wrong with you? Why would you say that? Well, clearly there's some separation. There's some division between the leadership and the people. So here in John 6.60, we pick up with Jesus having made this metaphoric statement about the theological reality that he is from heaven, and you must have him. You must have him as he has described himself. Not some limp-wristed man who came on the scene so as to be used of God, but that God himself robed himself in flesh for his own glory and for the salvation of all those for whom he would die. Again, when many of his disciples, and there's the clarification that this isn't a reference to the twelve, This is those many, the masses, the many disciples, those who are following his teaching. They're sitting under his instruction. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Well, all of you, if you've been in Christ for any appreciable period of time, as you've sat under legitimate sound teaching, you've grown in your awareness of your need for growth with regard to the deeper truths of the Bible. (laughs) And many times you've heard things and you thought, that can't be true. That is so different from anything I've ever heard before. And you go home as a good Berean and you think, how'd I miss this? For me, it was Acts 9. Many years sweeping it under the rug. How in the world could Paul become a Christian if he wasn't choosing Jesus? How can Paul, a murderer, a persecutor of Christians, how can he somehow get knocked over, blinded, strictly exclusively out of the sovereign grace of God and be granted eternal life when he himself was wanting nothing to do with Jesus? Because everything I'd ever been taught was that people who know Jesus are people who choose Jesus. And so for many years, being a faithful Bible reader, I would pass that text over and think, well, I don't really, I don't really have time. You know, i got to do other things. I don't have time to mess with that. For you, perhaps it was Romans 9. Maybe it was Ephesians 1 and 2. Maybe it was the book of Galatians. But as the God of Scripture continues to reveal truth to you as you systematically and faithfully and humbly and lovingly and sacrificially 
pour over the scripture for the purpose of understanding what God means in his word rather than sticking to your guns with regard to what you've believed for a number of years, willing to receive truth and be scathed by the truth. You, many of you, have submitted yourselves, kicking and screaming somewhat along the way, many of you because your spouse said, let's try this other church. And along the way, you've come to grips with the fact that truth is, as it goes deeper, it's, it's harder and harder. And so again, we say the book of John is funnel-shaped. You start with all this theology in a broader, barrel-like repository of truth. And that funnel's getting tighter and tighter and tighter. John 5 John 6, in particular, tighter and tighter, and fewer people squeeze through that funnel with that truth. And believe me, it's a squeeze. Narrow is the path. Broad is the path of those who go to destruction. Narrow is the path of those who genuinely believe in truth. And what happens many, many times along the way is that people will embrace so much more of so easily and so even passionately the general truths of Scripture. And as that funnel gets tighter and tighter, they begin to say, this is a hard saying. Who can receive it? Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? And the point was that they took offense at it. Listen where he goes with this. It's very interesting. He takes a turn into a direction that he knows he needs to go. He doesn't let them control the conversation. He controls it. And listen to how this goes here. Do you take offense at this? Do you take offense that I've asked you to eat my flesh? Oh, good, because that was my purpose in the metaphor that those of you who don't receive truth would be offended by truth so as to result in your willingness to reject it publicly. Because plenty of people will pretend to receive truth until that funnel gets tighter. The funnel's getting tighter. He says, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where, very specifically, he was before. Not just ascending, but ascending to where he was before. Pointing to that which they were most angry over, the idea that he came from heaven, the idea, as he will explain very clearly in chapter 8, before Abraham was. I am. What's going to happen when you see the Son of Man? Why does he use the phrase Son of Man there and not Son of God? Because he wants to emphasize the fact that they are judging by appearances, not judging rightly. You remember that from John 7, 24, that he tells them, you judge by the flesh. You're not judging with wisdom. You're not judging rightly. You're judging by appearances. He appears to be a man because he is a man. But that's all you know about him because that's all you see in his appearance. So he indicts them for that foolish, knowledgeless judgment. So he says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. See, this, friends, this is the problem when that funnel tightens. 
It's the Spirit who gives life. Plenty of people will believe most general theology. The clearest expression of that is the reality of what we call general revelation. Psalm 19, that God has expressed his existence in the glory of the heavens. Romans 1, he's written his existence on man's heart and in creation. It's general revelation. Anybody can believe that God exists. Everybody does, even though there are those who pretend that they don't because they don't want him to, but they know he does. That's general revelation. Most people will believe the general truths about God, but when you get into the particular realities about the person of Christ, what he accomplished on the cross, what he accomplished in the resurrection, then people start to peel off and they start to grumble. Maybe you were guilty in the past. Maybe you know someone who's currently guilty. They hear truth and they walk away and they grumble. Well, eventually, the separation will take place, eventually, eternally. As they reject truth, they will be punished forever for doing so. Back to John 6, verse 63 again. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. See that? That's the truth that separates. That's the ultimate truth, that he is God, having come from heaven, and that no one comes to him lest the Father bring him. See, that really violates our Arminian nature that says somehow, no, that can't be right because the way I remember it was that I initiated what took place. And so it is the juxtaposition of an experiential theology against a biblical theology. And that fight's been going on for a long, long time. Ultimately, Jesus wins that fight. Ultimately, Jesus, in his sovereign grace. As he has said, he lays down his life for his sheep. Ultimately, that truth will prevail. Well, verse 66 in John 6, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. See that? This is the necessary separation of the sheep from the goats. This is the necessary separation from those who are willing to acquiesce to so much general truth. But when Jesus gets very specific, they start to peel off. You could say they drop like flies and no longer walked with him. Verse 67, so Jesus said to the 12, moment of truth, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. This is why we say this is one of the reasons, this is one of the texts which we believe is sound proof that unless you believe in the deity of Jesus, you cannot be a Christian. This is why. You have the words of eternal life. And critical to this text is his deity. 
It's not a secondary issue. This is why people peeled away. It's one of the reasons they turned away from him. They refused to believe that he was the bread from heaven. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12? This is a different choosing from that of all the elect. This is a choosing of what? The 12 for a specific purpose. Some use this tragically and really dishonestly so to say, well, Jesus chooses a whole lot of people and I guess some of them don't come to him. This was an apostolic choosing. This was not a salvific choosing. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the fact that he chose a particular 12 for a particular role. And one of those was clearly not of the elect. One of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. So this morning, we pick up then in John 7, 37, where Jesus has cried out with a gut-felt proclamation to provide eternal thirst-quenching satisfaction to all those who are spiritually poor and spiritually parched and will come to him and drink. Let's read it. I'll read it out loud as you read silently. John 7, 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This morning in our text, we'll see that Jesus calls those who are spiritually parched to drink from the living water the living water of life, so that water will overflow into other needy, parched souls. We began last week with point number one. I wanted you to see the satisfaction of the believer. I want you to see the satisfaction of the believer. Now let's get to the chase here. The person who is not spirit-dwelt, spirit-in-dwelt, but he has a religious affinity, he likes religious things, maybe he's got a lengthy religious background, Or maybe it's new for him, but it really makes him feel better about himself and his ability to kind of push other people around spiritually. He loves 
that sort of ability to wield the weapon of seeming spiritual truth, but he's not satisfied. He doesn't display joy. He doesn't rest in a deep devotion to personal humility. He wants so much to force people into a willingness to simply acquiesce, a willingness to comply with their own interests and desires. But the believer is satisfied in the person of Christ. Jesus told the woman at the well, the person who drinks this water will never again thirst. And she's thinking, well, it must be magical water because she's still thinking physical water. Give me that water. She would come momentarily to realize that he is that water. And it's not to say, first of all, obviously, it's not to say that your physical thirst is going to cease in that moment. Again, we're speaking, and he was speaking metaphorically. But the idea also is not that you will never thirst and hunger after Jesus. The point is that the thirst is quenched. The satisfaction is granted, and it's granted in an increasing awareness of him and his greatness and his eternal glory for which you and I will live forever in heaven. That will be all that matters to us, just resting in his glory. The Son of God, the Son of Man will be all the light you and I will ever need. He will be all the thirst-quenching water that you and I will ever desire. We will simply long to do that which we were created to do and that which we will only be able to do, and that is to drink of him. Isn't that really a glorious prospect? <laughs> the, the one day will come when all the difficulties and the trials and the infirmities and the sadnesses and the sin and the seeming inability at times to overcome it, all of that will not only be a thing of the past, it will be an unremembered thing of the past, and all you will know is him. And as we sing of him and to him, this is the beauty of music. You know, when you think of how music has been so abused by mankind, when God himself has given it to us to provide that vehicle, so to speak, that more pleasant more fluid ability to express the theology he has given to us in his word about him, back to him, the beauty and the joy of doing that, that does produce emotion. It's not emotion-driven. It's not emotion-based. It creates emotion, right? You know, we don't worship him because we have some emotional feeling. We have emotional feeling because of who he is and his worth, that he's worthy of worship. And so as we declare these truths about him and we think of what heaven is going to be like, and the only information you and I have and should trust is what the Bible says about heaven. Again, that's another area where society, not just society, but really the church, has taken so much liberty with regard to heaven. People claiming to have gone to heaven and come back. Nonsense. Nonsense. One of the, what we might call secondary reasons we know that's nonsense is they always come back with a report that's completely contradictory to what the Bible teaches. In our text, where we see this proclamation coming from him who has cried out, the proclamation is one of coming unto him for that which legitimately and fully and eternally satisfies. When you're in heaven, 
You won't have any interest in anything other than him. On this last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the great day the people of Israel have for the last seven days been living in tents made of tree branches in commemoration of God's protection of their ancestors in the desert. He spared them from exhaustion and extinction by miraculously preventing their clothes and their shoes from wearing out. He did that for 40 years. They didn't wear out. This was God's protective provision. That's why the commemorative staying in the tents, the tents represented God's provision and his protection. He also provided food from the sky and water from a dry rock in great abundance. This is the heart and the action of a loving God who deserves that commemoration. And so God had commanded of them in Leviticus 23, to commemorate that period of time during which God's provision was so obvious. <laughs> they're wandering, they're escaping, and they're tempted to think it would have been better to stay in prison. And this is not unusual for you and others and me today to think you know, it would have been better to stay in that totally depraved prison because that was more fun. Well, that's because we're not experiencing the satisfaction that comes from sound teaching and sound counsel and sound fellowship and sound interaction with the body of Christ. It's interesting, you know this, it's no secret. It's interesting that many, many times when people arrive at the place where life becomes difficult, the first thing they do is run from the church. They start showing up less. No matter what the circumstance is, whether it's logistical difficulties in their life with a sickness, a job change, or a lack of money, a death in the family, or sin that's overtaken them, many times the first thing they do is run from the church because they're running from the Christ of Scripture. Add to that the reality that in many churches there's not a lot of help when circumstances come up like that. So the faithful church is going to be a, not just a sounding board, not just a place for counsel, but it's going to be a haven of rest and service and truth and help and hope. The great abundance that God provided in the desert is that which he still provides today. And he provides it in the context of the local church. The euphoria of the greatest of the feast is winding down at this point. The euphoria of all the feasts, uh, the celebration, the joy, the excitement, you can liken it to a county fair today. That there's so much ancillary stuff going on, they probably have likely lost the purpose of the feasts in their hearts. And yet, some of what's going on, we know historically, is still commemorative of God's provision. The water celebration, in particular, Every day they've expressed their gratitude for the Lord's provision in the harvest, also for the water provided in the desert. And well concentrated is the expression of the psalmist in Psalm 78, verse 16, where he says, He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like Rivers, And if you've been in Christ for any significant period of time, you've experienced the satisfaction of those rivers. At this point, the cisterns were likely near empty. 
Each day, under the direction of the high priest, the people would carry a large golden pot of water from the pool of Siloam to the water gate, while the choir sang from Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. But again, the cisterns were very likely near empty, and the religious leaders had ensured that included in the daily water ceremony was a prayer to the Lord for water. It's the month of Tishri, October, for you and me. They're coming off the summer heat, and water supplies are at their annual low. They need water, and so they sacrifice water to the Lord in an expression of trusting Him so that He'll provide water for their physical thirst and their farming needs. This continues to be a spiritual truth that pervades the reality of the people of God. Think of the resources that God has prospered you with. To the degree that you're willing to give those resources back to Him is the degree to which you trust Him. Oh, and by the way, the degree to which He will continue to bless you with further resources. This is what a sacrifice did. It proved a willingness to trust the one who provided the resources. Certainly, there would have been a mixed bag of faithfulness in the hard attitudes of those who are engaging in this. Some would have been completely self-righteous about it. Some would have been completely humble about it, and others somewhere in between. But the festival's coming to a close. With a scarcity of water, they will suffer. With an absence of water, they will die. And no sect of people throughout history has ever been unaware of that truth. As the festival winds down, the teardown of the booths in which they have been sleeping and living has begun. The celebrations are over, but the greatest moment is about to occur. Verse 37 tells us on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. This is not a peaceful public announcement. While Jesus always spoke with confidence, to say that he cried out means that this was nothing short of a fierce, full-lunged, fear-striking scream from the depths of his bowels. The term means from the belly. Jesus cried out with all his might. And why? Why an emotion-filled, high-volume, attention-gathering scream? Why? Because while the people thirsted physically, their ultimate thirst was spiritual. Each of them was a walking desert, dry to the bone, parched in their own spiritual condition, and fed water that did not satisfy by spiritual leaders who could not satisfy with a message that could not satisfy. The prophet Jeremiah declared in chapter 2, verse 12, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Maybe one of the most picturesque descriptions of false religion, led by false 
leaders, those who pour out empty water that does not satisfy. Specifically, teaching that does not help. It does not reflect the character of God. It does not reflect the character of repentance. It does not reflect the sovereign grace of a good and loving and gracious and righteous and compassionate God. It waters down the significance of man's spiritual condition, and therefore it paints a picture that doesn't need what Christ ultimately provides in the thirst-quenching water that he eternally is. Listen to this from 2 Peter 2, verse 14. Listen to this. Some of you remember our being in this text a few years ago. And here Peter is exposing false teachers. Listen to the terminology that he uses. And it could be said of those who were leading the masses of the Jews in Jesus' day. Listen to what Peter says. They have eyes full of adultery. Insatiable for sin. They pursue that which feeds the flesh and it's unquenchable. It's a hunger that cannot be met. They entice unsteady souls. That could be a large category of people. Unsteady souls. Jesus declares that even the elect can be deceived. And that's Satan's greatest desire, to deceive even the elect. So Jesus' words. Here Peter speaks of those who entice unsteady souls. Many times that's the person who mocks sound teaching and influences his own children to do the same. Many times that's the spiritual leader in the context of a local church who influences an entire congregation of people to believe falsehood. Peter says about them, they have hearts trained in greed. He calls them accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. These are, listen to this, listen to the terminology. These are waterless springs. Oh, how sad. How tragic. For the person who's wandering his way through the desert, parched, near death, all he desires is a drink of water. He comes on a spring and he's filled with hope only to discover that the spring is empty. And this is what takes place in so many pulpits today. This is what takes place so much on the internet today. Obviously, you can get sound teaching at both. But the sad reality is that unsteady souls subject themselves to bad teaching, which is a waterless spring. Peter goes on to say, for them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. So the judgment for those who teach falsehood is this gloomy, utter darkness that's designed, specifically reserved for those who teach falsehood. For he says, for speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved." 
For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. Listen carefully, because this is completely congruous with the text we're in in John 7. He says, the last state has become worse for them than the first. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The person who hears truth repeatedly continues to mock truth. And ultimately, God boots him into hell. And he is at fault. That man, that woman who continues to do that is at fault. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. The specific use of the middle voice. The sow returns to wallow after washing herself. It's a reflexive verb, meaning whatever she did, she did it. You could plug in here, I brought myself to Christ. I chose Christ. I asked him into my heart. Rather than the term that's used over 90 times in the book of John, believe. And as we've pointed out a number of times, belief results in good works. Saving faith, saving belief means there will be works that were predestined. Ephesians 2. Peter calls them waterless springs and mists driven by a storm, a satanic storm that drives with much force the person who is subject to that which he heard last. The guy who goes to the internet and whatever he most recently listened to is that about which he is most passionate. Waterless springs driven by a vacuous storm. And the unsteady will believe it all. The people of Israel were dead from spiritual dehydration, not near death. They were unregenerate, not regenerated. Why? Because it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life, Jesus says. While they were religious, they were not regenerate. While they whitewashed the outside, the inside was full of dead men's bones. While they followed Jesus, but did not believe in him. They were spiritually water deprived. And so the water of life himself cries out. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. The picture there couldn't be clearer. Come to me for sustenance. Come to the bread of life, but come to the water of life for thirst quenching, for that which satisfies. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This is why we say the person who has Christ has joy, because the river of life indwells him, and that river of life cannot be contained in him. And he has to tell people. 
It's not some sort of emotional, ecstatic experience that he just kind of can't help himself over. It's the reality that he enjoys Jesus. He's resting in Jesus for eternal life. If anyone thirsts, and of course everyone does, come to me and drink. Verse 39 says, Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. We spent most of our time in this last week, so I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but the point here is that the person who is satisfied in Jesus is reminded of that satisfaction by the indwelling Spirit. The person who grumbles nearly incessantly simply doesn't have the Spirit. Friends, let's be honest. If you have a propensity to walk away from no matter what the circumstance is and find negative in it, you don't have the river of life. Stop trying to fool yourself and everybody around you. Surrender. Give it up. Stop playing the game. You're not fooling anyone who knows you relatively well. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. It's the person who says, well, you know, I tried Jesus. Or the person who says, no, I have Jesus, but he shows no interest in righteousness, who's clearly not satisfied in him, constantly trying to change what the Scripture says about him to make him satisfactory to the flesh, which is no help at all. It's the Spirit who gives life. The person whose heart is overflowing with the river of life must live for Jesus and he must tell people about Jesus. And he doesn't just hand people tracts, which is not a bad thing to do. He tells them about the true Jesus. He tells them about repentance, about eternal life in the new life-providing resurrection of Jesus Christ which begins with the obedient life of Jesus Christ and with the atoning death of Jesus Christ, that which legitimately and definitely provides forgiveness. The person who will trust in that Jesus will experience satisfaction in him, and he'll keep going back to him for that satisfaction. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not been glorified. And so Jesus had not yet returned to heaven. John 17, 5 says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. One more among nearly innumerable expressions of his deity, his eternal deity, that he experienced glory in heaven with the Father before the world existed. He created the world. And sustains it, Colossians 1. We'll point to the separation among the people. I want you to see the separation among the people. Some believed and some further hardened their hearts. So there's this division, this separation. Verse 40 says, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. And this is a reference back to the knowledge that they had from Deuteronomy 18, which tells us, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. You remember the woman at the well in John 4:19 saying, 
Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. This was the budding of her awareness of the fact that he is the prophesied prophet. In John 6, 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. So there was this increasing awareness among some and therefore an increasing division with others. So those who were believing what they were hearing were being shown to be separate from those who were rejecting what they were being shown. This is the way it always works. The more truth that's provided, the more that division is revealed. In Matthew 21, verse 11, and the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So there was a budding and really an increasing awareness of the fact that he is the Christ. In fact, in verse 41 of our text, others said, this is the Christ. He is the Messiah. They had feared saying anything before. You remember in John 7, 12, and there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he's a good man, others said no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Verse 25 of John 7, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? See, these were the remnant. There was remnant Israel all throughout the 400-year period where God did not speak amongst the Jews who were genuinely regenerate. And here, those, some of whom were regenerate prior to the coming of Christ or maybe during his 27 non-ministry years, they became regenerate based upon Old Testament truth. They are the remnant. And the remnant is starting to grow. More and more people are beginning to become aware because of the grace of God that he is the Messiah. But this separation uh, was happening then. It's happening today. Jesus says there will be division amongst mother and daughter, father and son. Some of you have experienced that. And by God's amazing grace, some of you have experienced the recovery from that separation. Praise God. Isn't that the truth, that you have seen that separation in your own family? And when you prayed and you trusted the Lord and you clung closely and humbly but firmly to the truth of what the gospel is, God began to save family members. I was having a conversation with uh, someone in our church just this last week, and I said, you know, I think, I think um, we probably need to pray more for unsaved loved ones. How tragic is it that we can kind of become desensitized to not only the spiritual condition, but the spiritual destiny of those who die in their sin, and particularly those who are deceived, think they're in Christ, or at the very least want others to think that they are in Christ. I think you and I should pray more. I think we should pray together. I think in our family groups, there should be probably a season of prayer, maybe a moment of prayer where each of us says, you know, I've got these 12 family members who need Christ and three of them think they know him. Our text goes on to say, but some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? 
Well, you remember from Micah 5, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. This is why we sing that phrase, the ancient of days. It's a reference to Christ, another expression out of the Old Testament of his deity. 2 Samuel 7 verse 12 says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. This is God's promise to David that the Messiah will come from his loins. Jesus was in fact a descendant of David as recorded in Matthew 1 and Luke 1, born in Bethlehem as recorded in Matthew 2 and Luke 2. Look with me momentarily at Romans 1. Romans 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, the son of David. And so pervasively, Old Testament, and then in the Gospels uh, prior to the establishment of the church, and then in the establishment of the church, and then thereafter the establishment of the church, these consistent declarations of these basic historical facts. Not only was he predestined to come from Bethlehem to be born in Bethlehem, but the scripture is the record that shows that that was actually fulfilled. And so shame on the Jews for not being better aware, number one, of the historical theology of the Old Testament scripture, and number two, the life of Christ. And so arguing amongst themselves about whether or not he was from Bethlehem, whether or not he was from Galilee. He wasn't born in Galilee. Lived some of his life in Galilee, spent most of his time ministering in Capernaum. He was born in Bethlehem. But mentioning Galilee on their part was an intended insult. Same as from Nathaniel in John 1.46, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Come and see. Verse 43 in our text, so there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. They didn't lay hands on him. It wasn't yet his time. He said that a number of times. It's not yet his time. So while there was this human pursuit, this misguided human pursuit in an effort to arrest him, to put him away, to put him to death, that would not happen until God's decreed time. Point number three. Now that we've looked at the satisfaction of the believer, we've seen the separation amongst the people, and you could call that a microcosmic point of the last three chapters, right? You see this increasing separation. Now we've really seen it in a very particular way here in our text the separation of the people. 
point number three, I want you to see the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. And this is intrinsic to who they are. You know, when you think of Pharisee, you think self-righteous. You think sanctimonious. You think those who think they're better than others, or at least want others to think that they are better than others. So some desired him to be arrested, but did nothing. But officers had actually been sent to capture him. Verse 32 says, The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. But the officers were dismayed. Much like last week in verse 26, we saw the people say, Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? These officers are starting to catch on. Verse 45 this morning in our text says, The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. This is similar to Matthew 7, 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Verse 28 says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching in two ways. One, some believed and experienced satisfaction. Others did not believe and rejected him. At this point, with the long-awaited Messiah on the scene, the hope of Israel, the Christ, the King of heaven, the one who gave up his place at the right hand of the Father to become weak on our behalf, was standing before them, and some chose the sandy ground. Jesus would experience his Father's forsaking for the sake of those who forsook him and could not atone for themselves. Jesus became sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, and they were divided. It would please the Father to crush him. Verse 47, the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? To the officers who are saying, you know, you've never heard this man teach. No one teaches like him. You don't understand. So now they're defensive. They're self-righteous. Oh, how dare you think highly of someone else rather than us? The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Now they're wanting to know about others. Are there other Pharisees? Are there other leaders who've been deceived by him? Verse 49, but this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. This is like the Roman Catholic effort to do everything within their power to keep the Bible out of the people's hands. Nicodemus, verse 50, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Well, this would have been utterly astonishing to the Pharisees. Now think of it. He's not just one of them. Jesus refers to him as the teacher, and he's starting to slip. Nicodemus, not you. 
You can't be serious. But they say this. They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Jonah. How do they not know that? Well, maybe they do. But in the moment, they have no problem either with expressing their lack of knowledge or, two, their dishonest disposition. What are you and I to do with this? This self-righteous disposition of the Pharisees who were the pretend spiritual leaders. People are starting to see through them. They're starting to see through the spiritual veneer, starting to be exposed. Work back to that, to the fact that this division has begun to take place. People are believing in him and people are rejecting him. Some are still following him while they reject the truth about him. I'm pointing all the way back to the reality that the believer is satisfied in him. The believer finds joy in him, in obeying him, with fellowshipping with those for whom he died, by serving others, by being faithfully involved in Jesus' honoring ministry. What do we do with all this? A couple of passages and we'll finish. Proverbs 30, verse 15. The leech has two daughters. You know what a leech is. What does a leech do? It takes, it just devours. It doesn't do anything to be helpful. The leech has two daughters. Give and give. Wait a minute, I thought you said the leech takes. That's what the leech is saying. Give. Give. Three things are never satisfied. Four never say enough. A relentless pursuit of satisfying the flesh. That's what bad teaching does. That's what bad theology does. Sheol, the barren womb, the land never satisfied with water, and the fire that never says enough. Those are the four things that never say enough. Sheol, that's a, the afterlife. In this particular case, it's a reference to hell. Sheol never says enough. The barren womb, it's a sad, tragic, unfortunate reality in some folks' lives. Throughout history, there have been those who have exhibited great sadness over that. It never says enough. There's nothing you can do to change it. Third, the land never satisfied with water, the land that's never quenched with rain, the drought-ravaged land, and then four, the fire that never says enough, the fire that can't be put out, another picture of eternal torment. Just a hopeless state to hope in that which never says enough, to find yourself in that predicament where you're constantly trying to feed the flesh on that which does not satisfy. In Luke 16, the rich man cries out to Abraham saying, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm in anguish in this flame. It's a picture of eternal torment. Just a drop of water. Just you know, put your finger in the water. Just please, just that. That's all, all I'm asking. And um, Abraham says, you know, it's too late. You had multiple opportunities. You had much good presented before you. Okay, send someone to my father's house. I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come 
into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And they were not convinced when someone rose from the dead. You and I have a handful of opportunities in our lifetime to display what it is to be filled with the river of life, but not if we're not filled with the river of life. It is the Spirit of God who does the continuous work in the life of the person who is, in fact, regenerate. The Spirit of God does not do that work in the unregenerate man's life. He only brings conviction regarding sin and righteousness and judgment. And the man who continues to salve his conscience as a hot iron sears over the heart with a rejection of those essential truths, sin and righteousness and judgment. The man who rejects those truths ultimately is the man about whom Jesus would say, where I am, you cannot come. And this would have been plenty of those in the masses who followed him but did not believe him. So I appeal to you. Be the person who comes to Jesus to drink. So you can bring others to him to drink of the eternal living water that provides eternal satisfaction. Father, we come to you with hearts that are keenly aware of our need for putting off sin and putting on Christ, that we would increasingly experience the joy of coming to you and being granted grace to drink of the person of Jesus, to know him, to know him well, and to live in such a way that communicates the truth of who he is so that others will experience the joy and satisfying reality of the person of Jesus Christ, whose life was fully obedient to you, fully obeying your law with no infraction. He who experienced all that we experience and yet without sin, that he died then for sinners, but also that he'd be resurrected unto new life, that all those who would trust in him would experience the satisfying joy of eternal rivers of life. It's in his name we pray. Amen.